Welcome to Shed Life. All right, Mr. Chinar Axon, thanks very much for coming to the shed, mate. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much. Um, mate, let's start with a little bit of an introduction. Um, I've read your bio on, uh, on the Democracy at Work, and it's a fascinating one. Really intriguing stuff. Would you mind just giving us a brief overview of your sort of background, um, personal and, um, uh, uh, forgotten the word, <laughs> business or, uh, you know, activities, all that stuff. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, uh, so a little bit of, well, I guess, what I do. I'm, well, I'm Turkish. I'm Turkish-American. I live in, I live in D.C., Washington, D.C., um, my daytime job, I primarily work in uh, aid and relief work uh, for various international uh, donors and donor agencies like um, USAID, UNDP, um, DFID, DFAT, primarily in the area of uh, small uh, and medium enterprise development. So helping those small and medium enterprise companies be able to grow and uh, generate employment in a lot of countries around the world, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, the Balkans, um, um, some places in Southeast Asia as well. Um, I'm a social and uh, economic justice activist. I have been for a while, so that's something I'm quite passionate about. Um, I'm also the uh, founder of the local chapter of uh, Democracy at Work, um, uh, which is basically an organization which uh, promotes um, uh, worker co-ops and worker ownership uh, models um, um, in the U.S. and elsewhere. And I'm also the co-host of uh, All Things Co-op, which is a podcast uh, which is basically promoting, again, the idea of worker ownerships uh, um, through uh, um, various uh, activities um, generating democracy at work, um, promoting that through the podcast with various guests um, over three seasons. So that's that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, that's intriguing <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Very yeah, intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so before we get to um, uh, the professional aspect of what you do, which is the yeah. word I was looking for before, <laughs> I couldn't right. think of it. <laughs> just a, just a brief a brief um, question, just out of interest. Could you, could you name maybe some of like the major differences uh, you've realized um, between growing up in places such as you know, Turkey and maybe US and United Kingdom? Yeah, major differences. Um, well, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of differences between, I guess, uh, Turkey and those two other countries. And, you know, the time in which I was uh, growing up uh, had experiences there. I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, Turkey is a developing country. Um, it still is a developing country, even though it's not as not as uh, um, poor as some of the places I've worked through some of my aid and relief program work. Um, but yeah, it's it's very different in that in that sense than from the UK, obviously, and um, the US. Um, um, some major differences with regards to that, I think, is um, you know in Turkey you have. Uh, a little bit focus, a little bit more focus on, um, you know, uh, um, kind of a more of a kind of a homogeneous cultural society, um, which obviously in the UK and, and, and the US is quite heterogeneous, um, um, much more diverse uh, in that sense. Obviously, the UK and the US is much more developed in many aspects of the economy and um, opportunities. Um, 
with it, which brings a tremendous amount of opportunities for uh, people to take advantage of. It's, if it's education, if it's job opportunities, um, um, and also to seek, you know, kind of, you know, um, um, any kind of material rewards that you can, you know, have in, in some of these developed countries, such as the U.S. and U.K. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in that regard. You know, in Turkey, uh, um, you know, you have a little bit more of a social fabric. Um, um, you know, there's a, a little bit more of that social and cultural fabric that you have, basically, that uh, unites the people a, a little bit more. You know, the emphasis, uh, there tends to be that social network, um, there tends to be that kind of, cultural um, um, support uh, that you tend to tend to not really have in, in more you know heterogeneous societies like the US uh, and the UK to a great degree um, so those are the kind of a little bit more of the striking kind of um, aspects of it I think you know you know from primarily living in the US and um, having spent the majority of my uh, life here um, you know America's outlook to the rest of the world, in the way it engages the rest of the world is, uh, you know, tremendously different than what you would have in, in Turkey, which is um, more focused on basically its own national domestic politics and immediate regional um, issues and challenges that it's facing. Whereas in the U.S., you know, you're primarily part of more of an imperial system that has much more of a um, 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 Outlook in a sense that's international, so we can say to some degree, but also um, um, much more of an imperialist point of view, in which in way it interacts with other countries in the developing world, um, primarily, but also with other countries within Europe and other developed countries within Asia. So there's a lot of differences. There's a lot of you know. I mean, yeah. we could go on for, for forever on those kinds of things. Sure. But you know, you know, in one way or another, you know, I, I think having lived in you know, various countries, or growing up actually, because that leaves your mark on uh, various countries, you know, it um, um, changes your perspective and how you definitely see the world. I think what it does to a great degree is, um, in my sense, you don't really become fanatical about one or the other, right? You're always kind of stuck between two cultures and two countries. And so, which is, which can be, you know, there's some negatives with that, but I think some of the positives with that is that you can see both the good and the bad. In both of those in both uh, both societies, so it gives you a little bit more of an objective perspective. Yeah. And it's given me that, you know. Yeah. Absolutely, very well said. I agree with that. that. That sort of multiple perspective that you gain from that that definitely makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah. Just just staying on that topic for one one more quick question. Um, you might have touched upon it in your answer, but just to clarify, what what some maybe like the more personal thing that you've missed as opposed to like being in the United States now. But being back in, let's say, Turkey, for example, what's one of the major things that you couldn't take with you or couldn't bring that with you, whether cultural, you know, or anything individually? Yeah, you know, um, it's a good question, you know, and some things that you have a longing for, I think, you know, I was touching upon it a little bit more. You know, for all of its pros in, in the US, um, there is this kind of factualization that you have here, basically. You know, people are basically you know, oriented towards work. It's a culture that is mainly oriented towards work. Everybody, you know, throughout the day, basically, that, that's the major focus of it. And that's what you're oriented towards. That's what your social relationships are oriented towards. Um, whereas in places like Turkey, you know, um, you tend to have a little bit more of an extended social network. You tend to have this kind of um, deeper, more profound relationships that are not based simply on business transactions, 
but things where people, you know, you know, you have either family or extended family, or you have, you know, neighbors, that tends to form a more of a kind of extended community where people are looking out for one another at the end of the day. And I think that kind of that kind of aspect of you know um, um, having that kind of belonging is something that obviously you know you look for and you miss, and that's not unique to Turkey. I mean, that's probably in many many other places. Of course, yeah. But I think yeah, I think here you know you have a little bit you know there is this kind of alienation, atomization that happens here. And you know that has to do, you know, primarily with one aspect of this: the economic system, how things have been organized in the U.S., and that's having an influence all over the world, wherever you might go. Um, yeah, but it's those kinds of socializations, those kinds of sense of community, that you know, that are a little bit more automatic that you would, you know, you long for, that you look for. That it's not simply just about work. It's a little bit more. There's more of a kind of a social engagement that's outside of work, be it you know cultural, be it political, just be it in the community. That's not saying you can't find it in the U.S. or the U.K. Obviously, you can find that you know uh, if you look for it, but it's a little bit more readily apparent, I think. In sure. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. All right, wicked, good stuff. Um, moving on to so you mentioned you're uh, obviously an activist for social and economic justice, um, yeah. and also some anti-war activities. I've got a couple of questions surrounding this. Um, first one is a basic one, and I think it's quite evident based on uh, the titles. But just just to briefly explain to our listeners in a bit more detail, first of all, what what does this kind of work entail? First and foremost, like what's the major sort of structure of it? Yeah, um, well, I can talk about some of the work that we're doing at Democracy Democracy at Work, and basically, you know, um, through the podcast, through other outreach and activities, communication activities, we're basically promoting the idea of effectively democracy at work. And democracy at work basically meaning at the end of the day is um, worker ownership of production at the workplace effectively. Um, you know, we, we expect kind of democracy in the society in which we live from the political institutions to the figures that run for office and all that. However, for some reason, that, that uh, um, um, uh, need for democracy ends the moment we enter, enter the workplace, basically. Mm. And so um, one of the things that we're trying to do is basically really broaden the horizon and, and thinking uh, um, of people uh, about, you know, you know, really what does it mean to have kind of a democratic workplace and how do we create democracy at the workplace um, that is, is, is good for workers and at, at the end of the day is um, a more equitable place to work. And this is, you know, basically in the work that we're doing is countering basically what we're seeing with regards to regular, you know, hierarchical kind of capitalist organizations where, you know, you get a, you know, you have a management of the company and then workers and workers take basically the orders from management and they carry them out basically at the, yeah. at the end of the day and really don't have any say in the way the organization or the business is, is structured. So um, this is nothing new, though. I mean, this is, you know, these ideas of worker ownership have been, you know, around for centuries. It's as old as, you know, the birth of basically capitalism, which, um, you know, a lot of people were forced out of, you know, rural communities to come into cities, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, in Manchester and in, in, in London, other places, and to start working in these kind of, you know, factory settings, basically. And, and, and really, you know, spontaneously, this need for, you know, having something else where um, um, workers have a say in what they're doing and how, how they're doing it is something that's been, you know, very um, 
um, um, explored throughout throughout history in one aspect or another. So that's yep. that's part of that tradition that we're trying to bring forth. And you know, um, um, either through the podcast, either through the publications of materials, um, either through you know outreach to um, 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 different organizations, to really kind of um, 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 heighten the consciousness of the public um, around this form of organizing the workplace, which you know, complementary to you know a lot of work that's been done with unions and collective bargaining. But you know, this is another um, um, area that we think. You know, if we can kind of engender this democracy in the workplace, we can, again, um, also address a lot of these uh, negative externalities that happen under um, the current capitalist system or the current way the economy is structured in the U.S. and elsewhere. Mm. Yes, intriguing. Um, so what was like the kind of the point in your life where you realized this sort of um, this sort of mindset, philosophies are actually right? They're right for me. I believe in them 100%. Uh, what what was it that made you actually realize that? Was it like a, a certain mentor or a certain individual in your life who maybe showed you the, the ways or was it just through education and life experience that you decided, okay, this is the right thing to do. This is what we should be doing. Yeah, you know, um, um, I don't know. You know, it's, it's kind of a lifelong journey, I think, you know, for all of us, you know, in, in a way. And you take a lot from different people. I, I think going back to your first question, when you have these multiple perspectives, growing up in one place and seeing one place in another and taking the good and bad, you know, of each of those things, you tend to get this, you know, more holistic way of, of, of understanding of how the, how the world works. And, you know, I think those have definitely um, influenced me. I mean, it's definitely influenced me in the way I've, uh, the, the uh, way I've decided to, the work I've decided to go into, you know, coming from, I've always been curious, you know, why is, certain countries underdeveloped, why are other countries more developed? Mm. What is the background? What are the dynamics behind that? Why are certain people poor? Why are certain people rich? So I think there's that background. Obviously, you know, family members, um, um, my, my parents obviously having a, um, you know, uh, a perspective have, have obviously influenced me. Um, but also I just, you know, that, that, you know, growing up and seeing different models of how societies can be organized has really uh, led me to this point. And you know, um, you know, definitely, you know, you, you know, when you saw um, alternate visions in which societies were arranged, like socialist countries, like in the Soviet Union, or Cuba, or Vietnam, or other places, um, you know, you you could see, well, you know, well, there's some positive aspects of that. There's some negative aspects, mm. similar to here in the UK, right? You see positive yeah. and negative aspects of that. Um, um, and you learn from those kinds of things. But I think that international perspective definitely um, um, allowed me to really want to explore these, these various models and then see what else um, um, you know, was, was possible and what was a possible alternative. Living, living in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the U.S., um, you know, basically there's always been one perspective. Yeah, one perspective, and that's been um, neoliberal kind of capitalism for the last 40 years since Reagan, you know, the Reagan-Thatcher era, basically. Um, and that's just been the only thing that's ever been discussed. Um, but there's all these, you know, other societies that have been experimenting with different ways of how do you, you know, reorganize or organize a society. And those are things that I've, you know, I've, I've looked into. And 
I think, you know, um, the alternatives have always been, well, you have this kind of state-run economy of, of the Soviet Union or um, um, other countries. Or then you have, like, you know, the, the social democratic economies of the Scandinavian countries and, and what have you. Um, and, and, and each of those things, you know, noticing that there's pros and cons for each of those things led me to this kind of, I guess, this journey at the end of the day about um, um, I'm really thinking about, well, you know, what really matters? Uh, you know, what, where are we spending the majority of our time? Where do we spend the best hours of our days, basically, during the week as adults, right? And we, we spend it at our workplace. Um, but then coming to this realization, well, you're coming, you know, you're spending it at your workplace, but then you don't have any say in how the workplace is organized. You don't have any say in how um, um, profits are distributed to workers. So realizing, I think it's this journey of going through this kind of process of analyzing, seeing various different models, but then coming back to the basics at the end of the day, okay, well, you know, you know, what I make and what I do on a daily basis defines who I am. So why not have a say in that? And, and, and just coming to that, you know, realization of trial and error that, you know, well, that's an area that I should focus on. And also, I think at that, at that point, you know, when you start talking about these issues or when you start, um, um, I'm really talking about the idea of really owning and controlling your work, I think it really resonates with people at the end of the day, rather than some kind of more of these maybe ideas about, you know, macro, you know, government trying to, you know, produce this or that for the public. I think these ideas really tend to resonate for, with the individual. And those resonated with me. So I think it's this kind of, you know, a long journey of discovery that you go through, but then coming back to, okay, what are the basics? What defines me? And, you know, how can I make that change um, 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 in, in my workplace? But also, quite honestly, these kinds of workplace democracies, worker co-ops, these kinds of things, you're seeing them in a lot of places. So you can see these pioneering people who are starting these different kinds of organizations pointing to an alternative. Well, look, here's an alternative that actually functions. And so that also is very, very tangible and very compelling. But just on that last point, isn't it, isn't it easier when you're sending out a message of, like you said, co-ops and, you know, all these kind of uh, different ways mm -hmm. of, of working, um, isn't it easier to sort of set it up for companies which either don't exist or are small enough to, to make and affect change, but there'll still always be those big corporations at the top who will still control the majority of like, you know, the economy and the workers because they'll attract so many with their, you know, high, high paying jobs and all that. So how, how yeah. can you make that much change when, you know I mean? The, the top ones are, are really controlling a lot of everything. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good job. And a lot of them are controlling a lot of things, but I think you might've heard about this example about Mondragon, um, which is a Spanish worker co-op. Right. Uh, it's, I think, the 10th largest employer in the country, or maybe the 10th largest company in the country. It's got thousands of workers, but it's a worker co-op. Okay. And they started out of nothing, basically. This was right after Franco, right after the fascist regime of, what, mm -hmm. maybe, yeah, after Franco, or maybe, no, not before, actually. It was uh, Fa Father Arizmendi in the um, Basque region, um, started this company in the middle of nowhere, basically. It was in the Basque region that had been basically bombed the smithereens by the Franco uh, regime. And with poor people in the community, they realize, well, no one's coming here. No one's going to come and bring any services here. 
they started to build this company, they bought this cooperative, and now it's one of the biggest cooperatives in the world. It has a university, it has a bank, it does um, IT work, it does all this kind of software engineering. It's pretty amazing mm. in, its, in its scope. So yes, you are, but that's an exception. You are right, that's an exception. It tends to be a lot of the worker co-ops that we're seeing tend to be much smaller in size and um, um, not as big. We don't, they're not the big corporations and, and companies, um, obviously, and they can't compete with those big corporations and, and companies. But what you see a little bit more is that out of necessity, people are moving towards the worker cooperative model at the end of the day. And not only out of a necessity, but also out of a need to be able to really control what they're producing, really control what their impact is within the community that they're having. And really, you know, understanding that, you know, corporations and large companies that are looking for profit, you know, by any means necessary in the short term, um, really don't have the interests of, of, of the worker in mind at the end of the day. Their major motivation is obviously profits. And they'll go about doing that by whichever way they can, which is basically if they can outsource, you know, production to wherever labor is cheap, you know, they'll go ahead and do that. If they'll use a technology that's going to uh, uh, um, destroy the environment in which a lot of workers live in, they'll go ahead and do that and they'll um, fire uh, workers at will. So all of these things, and in the current pandemic and the crisis that we're seeing, which is revealing this even more so as people become more and more unemployed, there's this need and necessity that people are seeing. And in our podcast, while we're talking to all these people on all things co-op, in these various communities in the US, you see this kind of um, um, communities organizing around the idea of okay, you know, let's let's if, if these services aren't coming and nobody's coming to help us, then let's do it ourselves. If we need this kind of service, let's put it together ourselves. If we're doing, we need this kind of thing, let's do this ourselves. And you're seeing this kind of more grassroots movement towards that. Um, going to your question though, yes. Um, what also we're seeing is that there are tons of jobs, I mean, sorry, companies, um, um, that are now, uh, uh, um, um, these baby boomers are retiring, these people in their 60s and 70s are retiring, and they don't know what to do with their jobs. So normally what you would do is basically, well, I'm just going to close it down and I'm going to sell off the pieces of whatever I have, machinery, to my, you know, whoever wants to go ahead and buy it, sure. right? Yeah. But now what's happening is um, 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 through a lot of different community organizations and um, employee ownership programs that are either promoted by the municipalities, so you have a lot of progressive municipalities that are doing this. A lot of companies are now being converted into uh, worker co-ops. So you're working with these people who are about to retire, and they're given the option, you know, wait a minute, do you ever think about, you know, selling it to your workers? Mm -hmm. And then putting these kinds of, you know, um, technical assistance, support programs, mechanisms around to allow a lot of these owners to be able to do that. And in that instance, actually, it's much easier um, than rather than starting maybe a, a company from scratch sometimes. But in, in that instance, to be able to really provide um, um, the technical assistance of, for these companies' owners to convert into worker co-ops is, is something you're seeing more and more. And those owners also seem to have an interest in that as well. So it's something that you get to, you know, not only do your workers uh, at the end of the day benefit from this, but also the company stays in business. 
and also the legacy of that owner continues to, to an extent. So yes, there are um, different models that are emerging, but I think there's this, and particularly right now, as we're seeing the limitations of the current economic system, I think you see this tendency more towards an interest or a heightened consciousness around, around worker goals. Awesome. Yeah, that makes a really good point. Um, just going back to, you mentioned the pandemic, obviously that is um, the forefront of everyone's mind at the moment. If we could just talk to you about your, um, your thoughts on sort of where do you see this going in terms of economic challenges, economic challenges um, for let's say USA or you know, UK, if you have more knowledge on that as well. And how much do you think this is an opportunity like you touched upon for these uh, worker co-ops and stuff to really get involved and for people to just change their mindset a bit because they realized the current way didn't work during the pandemic when everything was sort of up in the air, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, it's a good question. It's on everybody's mind, um, obviously. Um, yeah, so, so here in the US has been particularly bad. Um, I don't know how much they've been reporting in the UK and other places. I mean, you guys sure. have your own challenges that you're dealing with, but it's been particularly bad here in the US. And what we are seeing now is kind of um, this implosion, quite honestly, of you know the foundation which this society had been um, established, or at least had been established ideologically for the last 40 to 50 years during this neoliberal period of, of, of capitalism here in the US. And it's shocking, you know, it's really, really shocking. And actually in my line of work, um, I kind of conflate things all the time because the work we do is international and you're working with a lot of other poor countries, right? Um, um, but, you know, and usually the situation is worse in poorer countries and worse, you know, in, in places. But it's the reverse, basically. It's flipped, flipped here. You know, here it's worse than it is, let's say, in Turkey, in, in, here in, in other places, Ethiopia, even, I mean, even much, much poorer countries have the resources or have been able to garner the resources to be able to deal um, with this with this pandemic, but here in the U.S. has been particularly bad. Um, some of the numbers, just to give you some of the numbers, I mean, there was 14% unemployment. Probably that number is much higher. It's probably around 20, 20%. I mean, those statistics don't take into account a lot of people who just stopped looking for for jobs, basically. Um, America has 5% of the population, world's population, but 30% of the deaths. Um, you have uh, a stop on uh, uh, um, um, the moratorium on rents is going to be lifted soon. So we're looking at around 30 million people who are going to be evicted from homes. 30 million people. Wow. Um, um, which basically overlaps with the 25, 20% of unemployment, which is going to be around 40 million people, more, more or less. Um, so you have a real situation, a real catastrophic situation here. And I don't, I don't want to be alarmist and everything, but what we're looking for in the next couple of months, the reality demonstrates that this is a very untenable, untenable situation. And, um, um, and it's sad to see at the end of the day because you're going to see a lot of people suffering in this country that um, um, really don't, you know, um, really doesn't, don't deserve any of this mm. at the end of the day. You know, this is not, this is not something that anybody actually deserves. Sure. But the, the thing is, the, you know, the pandemic itself, 
this happens in history. It's happened in 1918. It's happened, you know, with the with the plague. It's happened um, um, many many times throughout history, um, and it's it's a natural occurrence. Even though even though they say it's a natural occurrence, it has a lot to do with humans' incursion in the natural habitat mm. um, that's destroying the environment, and obviously we're getting these diseases that otherwise wouldn't have impacted as much if we hadn't. Um, uh, if their incursion hadn't taken place, but it's also been something in the making, you know, in this in this society, and particularly in the U.S. Um, through this through the past 40 years, basically, what's happened through this neoliberal experiment in the U.S. and in the U.K. to a certain degree, even though the U.K. is more progressive with one many of its social policies with the NHS and everything like that, but here in the U.S. It, you know, this, this, this process of privatizing, privatizing everything, subsuming the government below the market, basically, as a defender, as a proponent of the market, basically, has really created this gap, has really created this inability of this government to effectively deal with this crisis by privatizing healthcare here, basically, which is more or less privatized. It can't deal with, with this crisis. Privatizing so many aspects of our lives, like you know the the um, um, uh, not only the healthcare system, the educational system, um, um, a number of other things, you know, social social benefits that would definitely be a public good are here privatized at the end of the day, um, and it's it, it, this the society itself cannot cope with a shock to the system. That's the problem that we've we've come here. Now, I don't want to say that everything was rosy before here. You know, before this, we've had many many systemic challenges that have been existing in the U.S. for for a long long period of time. We have the issue of you know institutionalized systemic racism, which has been a huge huge problem here in the U.S. since its founding of the country, and we're seeing that with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, um, and we're seeing so many other uh, challenges that people are facing on a day-to-day -day basis um, of job insecurity, a lack of good-paying jobs, this growth of the gig economy as an alternative to um, um, really good jobs that had paying benefits. Um, just to give you an example, before the crisis, even you know, it, it wasn't rosy. There was a, a, about 150 million people, half the population, didn't even have $400 in savings in case of a crisis. Didn't have any $400 in case of a crisis. Um, um, and this is obviously before the pandemic. So you can imagine how bad it could be right now and going into the next couple of months. Um, and um, so this is, these, are, these are really, really fundamental issues and challenges. And it's, and it's sad to see because it's in the richest country in the world. It's yeah. not only the richest country in the world, Richest country in the history of the world, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you have if you have the sources where all of this wasn't privatized, creating so much wealth inequality in this country, if you had the sources, they could be garnered, they could be organized to deal with this with testing, whatever, testing or tracing, education, all of this in a more organized way, which would have I mean America would have been like the shining example of the world. They could have been dealt with this probably in the course of a month or so. Mm. And so instead, you have this complete implosion in society in which at this point right now, we're dealing with all of these issues that I mentioned, basically the inequality that's been created by the neoliberal system, the failure of a 
health system, the lack of appropriate jobs and wages, the lack of appropriate benefits, the lack of appropriate education, all this and systemic racism and, and challenges that have been faced by brown and black people in this country, not to mention indigenous people in this country but for, for centuries, coming to a, a head. And, and, and effectively, we had an interview the other day with a great guy, Michael Peck, um, who talked about this. You know, the, the scab has been ripped off, basically. And this wound, all of these wounds, no, no, none of these have been addressed in any way. They've just kicked it down the road. And so now it's coming to a head right now, basically. And it's very hard to be able to deal with all of these at the same time. So what I, what I see is, you know, I mean, we're in for a bumpy ride here in the U.S. We're in for a bumpy ride, especially in the coming months, as these uh, government programs, as, as pathetic as they were, to help workers are lifted with regards to um, um, supplemental income and all these moratoriums that they have put placed on rent and mortgages. And I think what you're going to see is um, um, civil unrest to a certain degree. You know, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement that's been happening is an indication of that. Obviously, that's a lot of pent-up frustration. Very, very obviously well-founded. That's, that, that had to really express itself in, in, this, in this way and is continuing to. But there is also all of these other challenges that are happening in regards to the economics, massive unemployment, massive inequality that are coming to an head. So... Civil on, uh, so why do I say civil unrest? And again, I don't want to be alarmist, but when you're talking about 45 million people unemployed, when you're talking about depression level era unemployment, it's very hard to paint a rosy picture. It's very hard to say here and be honest and say, oh, everything is going to be fine. Um, people are going to uh, have to um, um, do something and hopefully, and hopefully it will be organized and it will be productive in the sense that, you know, people understand that, yes, there's all these challenges that need to be dealt with, but hopefully in a unified, organized banner, um, I'm optimistic that the, the, there could be an organized progressive movement in the U.S. to, to really change the trajectory of what we're seeing um, in this country. Um, obviously, on the, on the right with Trump and this current administration, um, um, they're pushing against that. What they're trying to do is consolidate as much power as they have right now, uh, maintain the system in its current order, even though it's apparently quite apparent to most people that it's bankrupt, even though maybe the reasons aren't well understood, but it's quite apparent to uh, most people that it's bankrupt. They're going to consolidate power and try to maintain that power as much as possible. So, I, I, you know, it, it's a challenge, man. I mean, you know, you know, I wish I could be, you know, more optimistic, but, um, um, you know, that's how the universe functions. It's not just it's going to be terrible and pessimistic and it's all going to go to hell. No, at the same time, there's going to be this great creative energy, uh, progressive energy that I see, and hopefully that energy can be it can be organized. You know, mm. uh, that, that, that's the most important thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just picking up on one of the last things you said, yeah, the, the need to uh, sort of mo mobilize a progressive movement kind of. Um, do, do you see that happening though, you know, uh, any time in the near future based on what's going to go on in November with the two sort of candidates in charge? It, it doesn't seem like something that can happen 
now when there, like you said, there is so much civil rest and uncertainty in the, in the, in the country and the world, does it, is it something that has to happen maybe further down the line, like looking at maybe four years after the fact? Yeah, you know, it's really hard to, you know, uh, um, um, see, see into the future, you know. <laughs> I'm not a clairvoyant, clair it's hard to predict any, any, any of this stuff. You know, you can look to history and see examples of what happened, you know, during the Great Depression in this country, in the, you know, in the, in the late 20s and in the 30s. Um, what you had is, uh, um, after there was 25% unemployment, what you had is um, um, a tremendous mobilization of, of unionization that happened in the country of workers. And mind you, none of these people during that period had ever been part of a union. Their parents had been part of a union. Uh, relatives hadn't been part of the union, but because of the activism of the AFL, CIO, uh, a communist and, and socialist parties here in the U.S., they were able to organize millions of people in the matter of matters of years, basically, to to um, um, really create the progressive foundation and movement which ushered in the New Deal in this country, in the U.S. So, um, and what did that New Deal do? In the, great, in the depths of the Great Depression under Roosevelt, what that New Deal did is it gave people benefits that they never had before. Um, they gave them unemployment insurance. They gave them um, 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 social security. Um, they gave them a minimum wage. They gave them basically a, um, um, the National Park Service. There's great national parks here that are basically Yellowstone, all these kinds of things. Um, and, and a cultural arts service. And also the government hired, hired millions of workers, around 12 million workers, because the private sector wouldn't, to do all kinds of things, infrastructure work. And that was over, I think, about a three to four year period, right? So if that's possible then, it's the same thing as possible now. I don't see why that couldn't be possible now at the same time. So looking at history, that should give us a lot of optimism. Um, a lot of lessons learned about how we can move ahead in that direction and go into that direction. Unfortunately, right now, we don't have anything. Um, um, right now, we're not. There is the seeds of something growing with the BLM movement, other movements that are happening, and I think these will eventually coalesce um, to create more of a unified platform to push a progressive agenda, at least I hope so. But what's striking about now is that What's different is that this pandemic has brought the U.S. to its knees on, over the course of just a matter of months, mm. whereas before it was much more of a longer-term, drawn-out process. This has really, really uh, demonstrated how weak the U.S. has been internally with regards to some of these contradictions that it hasn't been able to address, and it's moved very quickly. Um, um, so uh, yes, I hope, and hopefully looking at you know, um, um, history, you know, um, the same things can be done. I don't see why it couldn't be done. Um, um, however, things are moving very quickly. And um, um, I think you know, you're seeing a lot of this promising movement in these different kinds of activism and, and work that's being done. And hopefully there's an there's a opportunity to coalesce and that these um, 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 different groups can be united. Hopefully, um, um, there could also be a political party, a third political party that could emerge that could provide this alternative as well. I think that probably now with uh, what happened with Bernie Sanders and a lot of disillusionment that a lot of young people had in, in part of that, um, um, supporting that uh, grassroots effort, 
not coming to fruition, not that realization of that, I think there's an understanding that there's a need for an alternative a political party that can really promote a lot of these ideas we've been, we've been just mm. discussing. Why, why is there only two parties though? Is it, is it something like that? Is it, is it just that there's not enough like drive for anyone else to go against them because of the size of them or the funding they have? Or is it just a historical traditional thing? That's, that's, that's something I've been intrigued by quite a long time actually. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really good point. You know, I think there's a lot of factors. Um, there's a lot of elements that go into, go into that. But I think, you know, these two political parties consolidating, I mean, I mean, again, if you have a real true democracy, you would have six, seven, eight political yeah. parties, right? And it would demonstrate the whole spectrum of political thought, all the way from the left to the right. But what you have now, basically, are two political parties, and you call them basically two wings of the business, the business party, basically, you know? Mm. The, the Republican Party tends to be much more conservative, and the Democratic Party, you know, tends to be a little bit more moderate. But how it's evolved over these past 40 years is that both of them are way towards the right of any kind of, you know, um, um, a political alternative that you have. For example, you know, compared to the Labour Party or Corbyn, you know, I mean, mm. you know, the Democratic Party is far to the right of, of, of that. Well, Sanders was, you know, trying to bring that tradition back, I think, to the U.S. Prior to, you know, during the New Deal, you really did have, you know, a Democratic Party that was representative of, of, of workers. Um, um, but that slowly got eroded after the New Deal um, happened. And, and, and now you have basically have two political parties that are either um, um, proponents of, of, of various segments of, of the business establishment at the end of the day. And I think, yes, I think, you know, through that consolidation, there's been tremendous amount of consolidation. Um, um, and there's been, there's been seeds of hope, though, that there could be um, a voice for more progressive voices within the Democratic Party, as you saw with the Sanders campaign, which is very important, by the way, because it brought up, not that Sanders is tremendously, you know, uh, progressive. I mean, he's quite, you know, moderate in some of the ideas that he was espousing, probably very moderate for Europe, quite honestly. But... Um, a lot of the issues that he was expounding, but they were quite in line with what had happened, you know, with the New Deal that had happened in this country. He just wanted to really uh, reclaim that legacy and build upon it a little bit more. So yes, and, and, and there has been those aspects to reform um, on the Democratic Party, and I think that's been uh, a very good, because what that campaign was able to do was bring these issues and bring these ideas back on the table. Um, um, and, 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 and opens people's minds about, wait a minute, there are alternatives out there. It doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be this unequal. We don't have to um, um, suffer and die because we can't get appropriate medical attention. We can have a, one of the best public uh, health uh, systems in the world. All of these things that were being spouse through that campaign um, um, are kind of reclaiming a little bit of uh, more of that uh, progressive ideology within in, in the, in the um, Democratic Party. But at the end of the day, also these parties, parties have co-opted. They have to tend to have co-opted any kind of real um, leftist or progressive movements in the country. They tend to co-opt it and then dilute it all the time. So yeah, through a very you know, long established history, um, they've been really being able to co uh, control basically the political system and co-op alternative voices at the same time. Um, and they've also, um, what's happened and what's given them a lot of strength is that 
they're primarily been supported by these major corporations and companies, which you alluded to in the beginning, basically. The corporations understood that long time ago, basically, well, ostensibly, the, the political scene, ostensibly, since it's supposed to be democratic, is the only uh, um, um, uh, uh, scene in which uh, a, uh, a corporate uh, power could be contested, right? Through politics, and through activism, and through creating alternative political voices and parties. So basically, these uh, political parties, Democratic and Republican political parties, have both been co-opted by uh, the uh, corporations in this country, who basically determine a lot of the policies, primarily um, a lot of the domestic policies and a lot of the international policies um, 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 in this country. That's why you have the outcome. That's why you have the massive inequality that's happened. That's why you have regressive tax systems in which there's been a distribution of wealth from poor and working people to billionaires. That's why in the middle of a pandemic, you have Jeff Bezos making $23 billion, while you have 45 million people in the richest country in the history of the world going unemployed or potentially losing, losing their homes. So yeah, they've cornered the market basically. So it's been very hard. So in a way, in a way uh, um, this is begging, and this process has been begging now for an alternative voice to come through. And I think what you're going to be seeing is an alternative political platform because it's at this point, at this level of challenges that this country is facing, I don't think they can distract the, uh, the country uh, much further um, um, with this two political party system. People see that there needs to be an alternative to make that change. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's a really an interesting uh, analysis. Uh, yeah. All right, um, I've got, uh, just moving on from that subject, I've got a couple of questions surrounding your, um, uh, some of the work you've done you know, towards international aid and relief programs. Mm-hmm. Um, first question is, um, I'll just base them all, both out, but first question is basically if you tell us more about that, some of the examples of the kinds of stuff you've done around the world. And uh, yeah. secondly, um, it, it's, it's, it's something which I'm intrigued by, like how do you ensure certain specific aid and relief is going to the right place if that makes sense mm-hmm. like there's mm-hmm. so many examples do you know what i mean in for wherever you look at that these aren't going to the right places by you know whether it's by corruption or theft or just mismanagement and obviously not saying that's the people who are giving it is maybe when you get to the ground level sometimes so that's something if you could address that um, in your experience that'd be great yeah no it's it's a good question i mean none of these you know programs are perfect at the end of the day you know that's that's how it is You know, the work that I've done with a lot of these uh, development agencies and donors um, um, is primarily, that's where I got into this idea of um, um, worker co-ops intact. And there's a lot of cooperative work that's actually done in development around farmers um, and farming communities uh, where a lot of farmers or smallholder farmers together collectively will uh, um, produce the product and then sell to a particular buyer. But within that collective um, um, selling arrangement, they'll have a little bit more power, um, a little bit more bargaining power with, with buyers. Um, but first of all, with development, it's interesting because a lot of these rich countries, they could be doing much more, like the US, UK, with different agency or Australia. But what, what you find out is like the, the amount that's given to, to this kind of funding is very, is minute. Mm. Um, you might ask like uh, the average person on the street and they'll be like, yeah, it's 20, 25%, but it's actually like 1% of GDP in the U.S. Um, so it's very, very small. 
Um, so there is a little bit of a constraint with the funding that happens primarily. You know, that's one thing um, um, at the end of the day. Um, um, so that could be increased. And, and that's always a challenge. And also with administrations, it depends on what administrations you have. So if you have more conservative administrations, such as Trump or, or, or Boris Johnson or, or what have you, they tend to not really be so inclined to increase funding for these kinds of programs. Um, but the work that I've been doing uh, primarily in places like the Balkans and places in, in sub-Saharan Africa or, 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 or Southeast Asia has been um, more around, um, they call it small and medium enterprise uh, development. And oh, these, yeah. would be these would be programs around, um, and the reason why that interests me, rather than let's say um, emergency relief or healthcare and vaccination, or um, there's other programs having to deal with, you know, infrastructure yeah. and engineer, I'm not an engineer, anything like that, is, you know, um, in a lot of these countries, like for example, let's say in Kosovo or Balkans, 90% of the economy are SMEs and small, these are like family owned businesses of 20 to 25 people. Um, and what they, and, 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 and there as a unit um, tend to be, you know, the biggest employers in those countries. So the assistance that is provided through the programs that we deal with allow these countries, uh, allow these companies primarily to do a number of things. Um, first of all, uh, there's um, um, activities that help on the, um, uh, uh, company level, the firm level, to increase their production through improved management, through um, improved marketing, um, um, through improved product production. Another one is pr through uh, providing kind of grants in which uh, companies will be able to buy, buy pro like, you know, whatever the capital messages that they need to do, the investments they need to make in order to expand their production. The other is work that we do is, is linking these companies uh, to to markets, to buyer markets, basically, be it in Germany, be it in the UK, be it in France, depending on the industry. It might be, for example, in um, certain sectors, like I've worked in the wood processing um, and uh, in, in the Balkans. So finished end products, value-add products, and connecting them to buyers in Italy. Um, and, or, or in, in sub-Saharan Africa, some places, have been working more to do with agribusinesses, basically, and connecting them to um, um, various end markets to sell, sell, sell their products. So there's, that, there's primarily those are the aspects um, um, uh, of work um, that I've been involved in. And um, there's also aspects in, in, in dealing with kind of um, improving, um, uh, enabling environment or policies around in which a lot of SMEs are trying to be a profitable or be able to grow. Um, so, for example, there might be a regulation um, 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 around uh, uh, fees or or, or, or or certain kinds of administrative fees that companies need to pay that need to be streamlined. So we work in those kinds of areas as well so that they can improve that kind of policy around the competitiveness of SMEs so they can expand their production and to expand their sales as well. The whole goal of these programs at the end of the day for these projects or measuring the sex success has been how many jobs have been created um, and how many uh, jobs are you expect to create through a lot of this aid and assistance, um, um, which is the most exciting part at the end of the day, um, to be able to, um, the part at the end of a program, a multi-year program, to be able to point to creating 10,000 jobs or what have you. That's pretty exciting to see. 
um, at the end of the day. And that, that's something that you know, has, always, has always interested me. Um, another big, another big aspect of it is facilitating financing. And facilitating a lot of financing and working capital needs that SMEs or small medium enterprises need from a lot of commercial institutions. A lot of these banks, a lot of these institutions aren't willing to work with SMEs, whether or not they don't know them or they don't understand. So helping them put together business plans, helping them work towards um, connecting them to banks, helping banks with maybe innovative ways of buying down their risk so that they can lend to SMEs is another area that, that, I've, uh, that we've worked in. Going back to your issue of corruption, I, you know, the programs I've worked with haven't dealt with more. It's more on a little bit more of a company by basis. Yeah. There are those bigger programs that will lend to a, uh, a government institution that deals with a certain thing and then find themselves in certain challenges or bigger companies. But these are much more, um, there's a much more supervision that's done. And it's much more on a transactional basis with individual companies in a sector. Uh, that makes sense. Um, just going, going back like, to what you said about some of these countries um, where you said the SMEs are kind of like, they make up the bulk of the, uh, the businesses within that country. Is there, is there not a danger of like, I don't know, maybe th these um, slightly poorer countries where the government would maybe want to privatize some of these and then it makes it maybe harder to, um, to, to have this sort of worker co-op sort of, um, a structure in place like you know the top echelon of maybe these SMEs uh, if they make up the majority is there not a danger of that or is that a bit far-fetched? I, I, I didn't quite get the question uh, you mean privatizing co-ops? So no so yeah. for, the, for the benefit of the, the government to privatize yeah. some of the, the top SMEs because they make up a lot of the, the companies of the country they're not many big corporations but to get to sort of reap benefits from that to help the yeah. maybe the government out, is there any is there a danger of that a risk or or is that is that already feasible in that? I, you know, it's it's yeah. It, so when I say there's uh, you know they make up the majority of the economy, they do um, in a lot of places. But also, what you also have is this top echelon of very big companies, right? At the end mm -hmm. of the day, and those are the big companies at the end of the day that where I think there's a lot of lack of transparency between government interaction because why? I mean, they have much more power. They're more power with lobbying, they're more power in the corridors of, of, of politics than you do with the SMEs on a lower level. So you don't really see this kind of interaction. In fact, what you do see at the end of the day is a lack of support, is a lack of um, 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 concern by these governments for a lot of these SMEs. Uh, okay. um, what, what's interesting is that um, you have these micro, finance, micro, micro enterprises. I don't know if you've heard about these. They're like one or two people. Um, they're very, very mom and pop sh uh, uh, shops. Okay. Um, and and if you, maybe they're really, really prevalent. Um, in in they, that term had been more popularized in Southeast Asia, in Bangladesh, in India. Mm. We have like you know you know two people working in something as a tailor or something like that. There's from the aid agencies, the UN and other things, the Moon Foundation. There's been a lot of focus on them. Why? Because they're you know very poor and they're getting by and basically it's subsistence kind of of work. Um, and also, there's been a lot of microfinance institutions working with them. But for some reason, in this SME area, um, at least in the economies I've worked in, it's this missing middle, you call it. There's not that much interest in them. So there's been a focus on the very low because it focuses on the poor. Um, and then the um, um, very high, which obviously 
control a lot of things and have a tremendous amount of influence. So you don't see the government in, you know, in, uh, in, um, really getting engaged with, with SMEs. I think you're seeing more of that now. I think you're seeing an understanding, well, that's a little bit more of a backbone economy. That's where the majority of employment is actually generated at the end of the day. And that's where a tremendous amount of, of, of focus should be. However, there's still challenges, obviously, and you know, working and solving those um, is um, a big one, particularly the financing one, getting, getting banks really to lend to these smaller companies, which are not traditionally, you know, they're not used to doing, they're easily lending to the big ones, um, um, or the government for that matter, and, uh, and, and, and not so much involved with SMEs because it takes too much. It takes too much to figure out their business, it's too small. It doesn't really serve their interests at the end of the day. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, hopefully that answers your question. But I, there's a bit of a divide. Yeah, no, absolutely makes sense. So, is there any sort of um, programs you're involved in at, in the, at the moment, or all the ones you mentioned at the start? Are they sort of ongoing, as in trying to see them through their life cycle a bit, or uh, you know, let, help them off the ground? Or is there anything new in uh, the sort of horizon? Um, you mean with the work I'm doing with the? Yeah, SME sorry, with yeah, the, yeah, yeah, with SME, sir. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Right now, basically, no. It's um, you know, given all the craziness with with this you know pandemic and, and working remotely, I think it's kind of you know um, put a few things on hold, a lot of programs on hold. So uh, right now, I'm focused primarily in in, in the Balkans area, um, and I'm focusing on a, a few programs there, um, and that'll continue probably for a few more years, I think. Um, but other programs, I think, right now, given the uncertainty around what's happening. Yeah. Um, even though I don't know if international aid is going to be impacted by this pandemic, I, I don't see why it wouldn't be at the end of the day. Everything has been impacted um, to a certain degree. Um, but um, more or less, I'm, I'm, I'm just focused on, on this uh, program. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it's interesting stuff, man. Really fascinating work that you do. Um, all right. I'm just going to wrap up with a final question. We've taken up enough of your time and it's been a quality discussion, man, honestly. Um, one question I had was, all right, so democracy at work, you, you mentioned that right at the start. Um, you are, I believe, the DC office uh, co-founder. Um, yeah. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit about how that sort of came about? Like, how did you get involved in that in the start? And like, how did you go to help setting up a whole, you know, um, yeah, office, if you like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, so democracy at work, like I said, um, is a organization that's dedicated to promoting uh, a worker co-ops. In a, a, and also um, as a platform to uh, demonstrate that there's another way of organizing our economy. It was founded by Rick Wolf. Um, um, he is a, a professor um, of economics. He's uh, been a professor for economics for decades. He has his own uh, um, show, uh, Economic Update. He lectures around the country. And, and basically, you know, um, going back to your earlier question, this was this evolution of process that I went through effectively, you know, um, looking through various different alternatives of how we can organize, how can we find an alternative to this current way in which we're structuring our economy that's more just, that's about economic justice. And really finding out about um, 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 democracy at work through uh, participating in the Occupy movement in 2011 after the financial crisis that happened, uh, the great financial crisis that happened, and then really stumbling on the work that um, um, Rick Wolf had been doing in this area, which soon after he started um, uh, Democracy at Work. So uh, again, um, that concept of a worker co-op, introducing democracy at work, 
really was something that was just a light bulb that went off in my head basically mm. when I read into it, when I thought about it a little bit more. Um, um, all these various systems um, that I've had to really deal with, you know, how we organize our economy. Do we do it through state-run enterprises like we had in the Soviet Union? Do we have it through a partial public-private system like you have in the Scandinavian countries? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, um, or do we bring it back to its basics, which is basically the workplace itself um, and, 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 and controlling the workplace where we decide as workers when we go into there what to produce, how to produce, um, and what to do with the profits at the end of the day. That practical, realistic way of going about organizing a business and where we work and how it amplifies exponentially throughout the economy was something that really, really reverberated with me, really, really something that stuck with me. And really, really is something that's very tangible because it's being done now. You're having those pockets, you have those pioneers that are actually doing that work. And there are a lot of other people in communities now, right now, which are disconnecting from this current system because of the place that we're in, that are looking to doing that. So that's a long story getting to, the, getting to your question, but yeah, finding out, finding out more about that and learning more about from Rick, Rick about, you know, through his lectures and his ideas around this and how this could be a real uh, a potential a movement for bigger economic change was something that I was really passionate about. And by the way, you know, um, Corbyn had that as part of his economic platform as well about cooperatives, you know, um, for right of first refusal, if this company is going to leave the UK, by law, it would have to basically consult its workers and give them the right to buy it out in a certain period before it decided to, like, uh, tactile and leave basically so those kinds of things but um but but then understanding well you know we need to really expand this platform and really make this more of a national um, um organization you know i felt compelled with other people here within the progressive scene to start this organization um here in dc and you know we've been you know uh, active within the community uh, reaching out to different organizations coordinating with them uh, promoting the idea of what worker co-ops are, educating the population, and also starting a podcast, uh, All Things uh, Co-op, um, which is especially actually, given it's very hard to do these, you know, during the pandemics with social, you know, this is yeah. very hard to like put these things together. It's actually been really helpful now, because now we can reach out, like you've been reaching out to me, mm. to do this podcast and, podcast and educate more people who are at home about the idea of, of worker co-ops. So hopefully, yeah, that's that's it. Hopefully we can expand into bigger things and, and um, um, promote the idea um, um, throughout the country. And uh, we do have other chapters around the world. So hopefully we can do a little bit more than that too. Yeah. Uh, sounds good, mate. Absolutely yeah. uh, incredible stuff. Uh, really intriguing talking to you. Um, yeah, thanks very much for coming on. And uh, we hope to speak to you again soon. Uh, just before we let you go, why don't you just tell our listeners um, where they can find all things Co-op Podcast. Give it a listen themselves. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so um, we have a podcast and we also have a video. All you need to do, do is go to democracyatwork.info and uh, you'll be able to find um, All Things Co-op as one of the uh, podcasts. There's, um, um, there's a couple of other podcasts um, and video um, updates that are provided by Rick Wolf. There's Economic Update and there's the um, um, Anti-Capitalist Chronicles, which is by David Harvey. Um, and then all things co-op as well. So please go to the website, democracyatwork.info. Awesome. All right, Mr. Chino Axon, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
All right. Thank you for having me on Shedlock. Good luck. Cheers. All right, people. Stay safe. Bye-bye.